you'll take your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts, chapter 2. I don't know what it is about New Year's. It's, it's a time when people make resolutions. It's a time that seems to be kind of this new start. A time for, for, for fresh starts. Maybe, maybe part of it is just the fact that it's, it's got the word new in it. It might be that, that uh, because so much of the Western world was shaped by uh, biblical cultures, the ancient, ancient Israel and, and the church culture. Uh, it's only been the last few hundred years that that has been lost to a, a fairly significant degree. Uh, the, uh, the, the New Year's Day for Israel was associated with the Day of Atonement. And that was kind of when an offering was made for, for all of the nation for all of the previous year. So maybe there's a connection there with saying... Now it's fresh. Now the slate is clean. Now it's now it's all beginning. It it might be as, it, it might come down just to the practical f- fact that sometime around December twentieth or twenty first is the winter solstice. It's the the least amount of daylight we have in a twenty four hour period, and then it begins to climb the other way. Maybe it's that. I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, what we can say for certainty is that we don't know. We don't know what's coming in the next year. We don't know what the next 366 days will bring. 2020 is a leap year. You're counting that kind of thing. We don't know what kind of joys there are going to be. We don't know what kind of griefs there are going to be. We don't know, um, as, well, with a couple of, of exceptions, we don't know what births there will be. And, and you're not in 2020 yet. It could be before Wednesday. We're praying that they'll stay where they are. We don't know what deaths there could be. And every one of us is subject to death. There could be wonderful reconciliations. There could be uh, sorrowful breaking and, and separations. Prophet Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 10.23, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself that it is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. He was probably thinking of Proverbs 16, 9, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Or, or maybe Proverbs nineteen twenty one: many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Well, as, as we look at the, the end of 2019 and the beginning of 2020 and the, the year to come, we have to begin with a foundation of trust in the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign. For Becky, she has to come to rest in the sovereignty of God. Craig has to come to rest and rely and abandon himself to the sovereignty of God. To believe that because God is God... He is sovereign over all things, and because he is good and just, we can trust him in his sovereignty. We are not 
slaves who who work hard so that we, we hope we may find a place in the kingdom someday. We are children and heirs who have already been granted as Christians, as those who believe in Jesus Christ, the fullness of what the glorified Savior has and are being built into his image by the power of God. We trust in that too. There's so much about the coming year that we we don't know, that we can't control. Jeremiah, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 29.29 says the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever. We don't know what the decrees of God are going to be. But we do know what he has revealed in his word. We're not called to live according to the secret things, but according to the things that have been revealed. So we're not helpless or ignorant regarding the year to come. There's a lot we don't know. But there are things that we can do to prepare ourselves. Now, if, if we had known that we were going to have a child with a birth defect, we would have prepared in a very specific way. If we could see what would happen in three months or six months or nine months and know that that event was coming, that that thing was coming upon us, we could spend our time studying and preparing and talking to people and getting counsel. We don't have that. What do we have? We have the, the, the disciplines that we see in Acts 2.42. There are other disciplines in Scripture. I like these because they cover the entire breadth of what it means to be a Christian, and they do it in a very concise way. In the, in the second chapter of Acts, the church is born. The Holy Spirit falls upon the disciples. Uh, they, they began to speak in other human languages as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. This caused quite a stir in Jerusalem, and so Peter preached a, a sermon and preached the gospel and preached their responsibility in crucifying the Lord Jesus and Verse 37 says, when the, when the crowd heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the rest of the disciples, or rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And uh, verse 40 says, with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourself from this crooked generation And verse 41 tells us the result of the Spirit's work. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And then verse 42 tells us what the nature of their new life in Christ was like. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. They devoted themselves. How do we live? We devote ourselves. And we devote ourselves to to anything and everything. What you do on a consistent basis is what you're devoted to. It's what you're devoted to. It's what you spend your time doing. It's what you think about. These people continued and persevered in these things, and they didn't stop. 
there's a principle in biblical interpretation called the law of first occurrence. The law of first occurrence. And what that says is the first time you see something in Scripture is very significant in defining what it is and what it's for and how it works. Uh, So earlier in in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit falls upon them and they begin to speak in other tongues, we're told with, with no uncertainty at all that these are human languages and were given the, the, uh, the regions of the languages that they, were speaking, that they were speaking, 13 of them. That sets the pattern for the gift of tongues through the rest of Scripture, that tongues is not gibberish, it's not babbling like is done so much in our time. Tongues was a human language given as a judgment, by the way, against Israel. God said he would speak to his people through the tongues of the Gentiles. Well, the law of first occurrence also says, what do we do as Christians? What do we do as believers in Christ? Acts 2.42. The the apostles' teaching is crucial. The fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. If we only do these things haphazardly or on occasion or when we have time or when the the mood strikes us, we're not devoted. Devotion requires a consistency that we we set a pattern for our lives and then we carry out that pattern by the help of the Spirit of God. So let's talk about each of these four. The first, the apostles' teaching is the Word of God. We need to understand what Scripture says. Specifically, it's speaking about the teachings of Jesus. At the end of of Matthew chapter 28, Jesus came to his disciples. This is right before he ascends. And he says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Baptism is that single public confession of identity with Christ, of faith in him. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Teaching here is an ongoing process that is never over in this life. And then he says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It might not come as a surprise, or it might come as a surprise that teaching is almost a lost thing in the church today. What happens is not teaching. What happens is often warm speeches, um, encouraging things. But the idea of consistently teaching the Scripture, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, as J. Vernon McGee would say, is becoming more and more rare, although... We should be heartened that there is a resurgence taking place of preaching within the, the, the body of Christ. By teaching what Jesus commanded, the apostles affirmed his authority. This wasn't the apostles' teaching. This wasn't what they invented. This wasn't what they thought people needed to hear. This was teaching what Jesus had commanded just as he commanded them in the Great Commission. And so we are to continually feed on the Word of God, which is the foundation for all spiritual life. All spiritual life begins with Scripture. It begins with what God has revealed. Deuteronomy 29, there are secret things that we don't know. 
and they're revealed things which are for us. This begins with, with reading the Word of God. We live in an incredible time. You know, for, for a period of six or 700 years, the Roman Catholic Church in Europe made it virtually illegal to read the Bible. Even once the printing press had been invented and Bibles were being printed, it was a, a terrible crime to even translate from the original languages into our own language. Men like uh, Wycliffe and William Tyndale gave their lives for the crime of translating the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into the, the tongue of their day. When Martin Luther had been uh, rebuked by the Roman Catholic Church, he was on his way back from that, from that first meeting. This is before he's actually born again, by the way. Parenthetically, the Reformation dates to 1517 when Luther nails up the 95 Theses. He didn't confess Christ as Savior by, by Christ, or salvation by, by faith alone and Christ alone until 1519. When he's on his way home from that first rebuke, they find out that he's being hunted by men who have been ordered to kill him. And so he's kidnapped, literally kidnapped by his friends. And he's taken to the town of Wartburg and he's sealed up in a, in a tower for about a year to protect his life. And he had nothing to do. So what does Martin Luther do for a year? He translates the Bible from the Hebrew and the Greek into German. Had nothing else to do. He may as well do that. And he gave his people the Bible in their own language. If you don't read the Bible every day, let me encourage you to just start. Just start. If you only read sporadically, get a bookmark, flip your Bible open, and stop at some point. It really doesn't matter because you're going to keep going. And, and put it in there. If you want to start with Genesis, start with Genesis. That's great. Want to start with Matthew? That kind of makes sense too. If you want to start with Obadiah or Jude, it doesn't matter. Start. Just start. Keep your bookmark moving every day. You can read for breadth. If you read four chapters a day, you'll read the whole Bible in a year. And four chapters of, of Scripture are pretty comfortable to read. Psalm 19 kind of counts as its own. But otherwise, four chapters is, is not too much. If you want to read for depth, do this. Take a book and read it for a month. Read the book of Jude every day for a month. Just one time a day. Read Colossians once a day for a month. Matthew's longer. Matthew's 28 chapters. If, if you read four chapters a day, you'll read Matthew four times in a month. And now you're reading for depth. You're reading for familiarity so that you begin to see those threads. Before I started preaching through Philippians a couple of years ago, I had listened to an audio Bible and read the book more than a hundred times before I ever started preaching. So when I started preaching, I understood how verse 6 of chapter 1 connected into chapter 4. Well, you don't get that through magic. You get that just through exposure. Read for breadth. Read the whole Bible in a year. Read for depth. Read a book a month. 
Get an audio Bible. If you don't have time to read, if reading is not your thing, get an audio Bible and, and listen to it the same way. Choose to listen to it for breadth or listen to it for depth and just listen to the same book over and over again. Now, if you've been consistent with the, Bible, with the time in the Word every day, whether it's 10 chapters or one chapter, whatever it happens to be, maybe think about switching that up. We can become really accustomed to just doing the same thing over and over again. Devotion to the Scriptures has to go beyond basic reading. We have to study. All of us are in need of being taught. That's really what we're being shown in Acts 2.42. It's not that they devoted themselves to the reading of Scripture. That's necessary. They They devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. All of us need to be taught. My primary ministry is, is teaching the word carefully, verse by verse, book by book. I spend hours every week in study and preparation. And you know, as I do that, I, I sit at the feet of teachers. I read what's been written by, by men who are alive, like Steve Lawson, James White, John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, Daryl Harrison, and others. Made Linda happy. I got Daryl in there, and I and and through the the wonder of print, I'm able to sit with John Calvin, and Martin Luther, and J. C. Ryle, and Charles Simeon, and John Owen, and Charles Spurgeon. And I'm able to say, Pastor Spurgeon, I'm in I'm in Matthew chapter one. Talk to me, and he talks to me. We need to study. We need to read. If you don't have time or the inclination or the ability to study for yourself, that's okay. Get a Matthew Henry one-volume commentary on the entire Bible. It's a little dense, but it's very solid. And Matthew Henry's pretty cheap. The Bible's the key to knowing who God is and becoming like Christ. We can't believe what we don't know. So we start there. The second thing that he speaks about is the fellowship. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. The fellowship here is the church. Nobody in the, in the early part of, of the life of the church, nobody in the first century thought that being a Christian and being joined to a local group of Christians were completely separate and distinct from one another. In fact, the Apostle John, when he writes in his first letter, coincidentally called 1 John, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life which was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and which was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John says, we preach the gospel bluntly, clearly, constantly, loudly, because we want you with us in Christ. For John, being a Christian was being in the church. It was being part of the church. Not the church 
with the, with the big steeple and the huge staff and all of the organization. Not that. This church, the people of Christ. When I was in seminary, the class that I had in, on, in evangelism was solely about evangelism. When you got somebody to pray the prayer, the professor was a decisional evangelist. God is passively waiting for you to do something which I disagree with. Nevertheless, when you've prayed the prayer, the, the work of evangelism is done. Now we're done. That's never the biblical picture. The biblical picture is you devote yourself to the fellowship. You devote yourself to this gathering of the people of God as they meet and as they live their lives together. Friendships come and go. Our shared life in Christ remains. Being part of the church is not being part of, the cl- part of a club. It's part and parcel of being joined to Christ. To be in the church is to be in his body. 1 Corinthians 12 presents a picture of the body of Christ as a body, as a human body. Paul says, you know, just because the eye is not an ear doesn't mean it has no place. But to hear a lot of Christians today, and I've got no doubt that I was there at one time myself as well, to hear a lot of Christians today, the body of Christ is just a, a bunch of disembodied, dissected body parts floating through the world, as opposed to something joined together. So as we apply this truth to our lives in the context of our church family, we, we grow in holiness ourselves and we encourage others to grow. We receive mercy when we're, when we're aching and bruised and we're able to give mercy to those who need it. My prayer, my hope is that each one of you is committed to One Hope Fellowship and that you'll maintain that commitment. My belief is, is that the, the majority of you, I'm not sure about the kids, but the majority of you have given your lives to Christ and that that's reflected in your faith and your belief and your trust in, in where you turn in times of crisis and the way that you live your life. Being joined to his body universally invisible is, is, is there. But we were never meant to be isolated. We've all known people who who kind of hop around. We knew a man at our church in California who visited one church each week. He confessed Christ. He had all, he had all the lingo. He carried a Bible. His life was pretty wretched. So we saw him about once every three or four months. He would come in and, Bob, there's, there's Bob. And then next week he's gone because he's visiting somewhere else. I'm just in love with the church. It's like, but... but We know you're living in sin. We've known other people who they they come in for a year or two, they get itchy feet and they move on, and they just consistently do that. They've never been anywhere for more than a couple of years. Are there reasons to leave? Of course. Sometimes you move. Sometimes the church is failing. Sometimes the truth isn't being taught. There are reasons to leave but not consumer reasons. 
Not the reasons of, I'm here for a product, I'm here for a service, and I'm not getting the kind of service, the kind of product that I expect. My steady counsel to new believers is find a place that teaches the word where you're nourished and fed and encouraged and where you can encourage and strengthen others and then stay there until the Lord moves you. The third aspect of this disciplined life is the breaking of bread. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. This is communion. Jesus has given us very clear instructions about communion, the Lord's Supper. He tells us that it is a time for remembering his death for our sins. And so uh, being devoted to the breaking of bread is being devoted to the cross of Christ. It's being devoted to his atoning death. It's being devoted to remembering our need for a Savior. A lot of people don't want to be reminded of their need for a Savior. If it causes you deep and great pain to think about your sins, you don't understand the atonement. Jesus will bear the scars of the atonement for all eternity. We will see for all eternity the scars on his hands, on his feet, in his side, and he will always be our Savior. We will always remember that we were sinners in need of a Savior. We, we don't live with the constant guilt and shame of that. We live with this humble, joyous gladness that we've been redeemed and forgiven. Maybe you've seen the bumper sticker or heard the saying, whenever Satan reminds you of his past, remind him of his future. Well, whenever Satan reminds you that you're a sinner, admit it. Agree with him. I remember hearing R.C. Sproul say in a sermon, whenever Satan comes to me and points out a sin, I say to Satan, oh, you have no idea how bad I am. But I have a Savior. So what's your point? Satan will stop coming to you and reminding you of your sins if every time he reminds you of your sins, you remember your Savior. When we celebrate communion together, it brings us back to base one. It brings us back to the starting point that we were sinners in need of a Savior and that we have such a Savior. And we do this consistently so that we remember to glorify the Lord for what he did and a result of that is that it breaks pride if you can think of the sins that you were committing 5 or 10 or 20 or 30 years ago and, and how the Lord has forgiven you for those things and broken those things off of your life, then it's a joyous thing to remember that. Being in the Word, being in fellowship with other believers is, is regularly going to show us our faults. And we're, we're going to see the faults of others. We're going to see the mistakes and the foolish things that other people do. We're going to hear their, their wrong theological ideas. You're going to hear my mistakes. I'm on public display. 
Communion is the place where, where I remind myself I have a Savior, and I remind you you have a Savior, and I remind you I have a Savior, and you remind me you have a Savior. It's a place where we say, you know, none of us are anything to write home about. All of us have received the mercy and grace of God. And because I've received his mercy and grace, for countless sins, I can show you the grace for your sins. It's interesting. It's not victories that draw people together. It's suffering that draws people together. It's suffering that knits us together. It's going through the hardship and remaining with each other wherever that happens to be. That's why we see books and movies like Band of Brothers of men who went through extraordinary suffering in war. And 30, 40, 50 years after the fact, when they think about their fallen comrades, they weep. Communion allows us to take those moments of suffering and need and share them together and remember our Savior. By the way, we never see communion celebrated privately in Scripture. Communion is, is, on the one hand, an intensely personal thing. I have a Savior. You have a Savior. And yet, every time we see it in Scripture, there's a group there. So we're doing it individually, but we're doing it as a body. We're doing it together. The fourth element of this this life, this preparation for what's to come, is prayer. Prayer is an odd thing. Um, I've been reading a a book, and, and Linda's read it, and some others have called Prayer and the Knowledge of God by a man named Graham Goldsworthy. It's out of print in the United States. It's in print in, in the United Kingdom, and you can get it there. It's not yet available digitally, uh, which is sad to me because I like everything on my computer. But it is, it is the, the most encouraging, warming, strengthening book of book and prayer I've ever read. He begins with the reality that Prayer is, is not simply going through a laundry list, but that it's rooted in God's communication to us and the communication that takes place, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit within the Trinity. Well, what, what we see here is not simply prayer in verse 42, but worship. It's worship. In verse 46, it says, Day by day, attending the temple together. And breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. These early Christians were involved in worship together on a daily basis. As chapter 3 opens up, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer. Prayer was something that was disciplined and deliberate, that was rooted in worship. Now, worship is, is glorifying God according to the glory he gives himself in Scripture. Worship is repeating back to God who he has revealed himself to be. Prayer is calling upon God as he has revealed himself to be. So worship is not singing, although singing can be worship. 
And prayer is not going through the laundry list of I need, I need, I need, I want, I need, I want, I want. Prayer is going down the line of who God is. Who is he? He's Savior. Oh, Lord, we think about these people we know who don't know you. Would you save them? He's healer. Lord, we lift up these babies and we lift up Becky and her family and we lift up those who are sick. He's merciful. And so we lift up those whose lives are falling apart. He's just. And so we ask that he stop wicked behavior. That he bring abortion to an end. That he have mercy on us regarding the the plague of homosexuality in our country and our world. Prayer has to begin with who God is and what he has promised in order for there to be any kind of faith. It struck me as I was preparing this that the whole world prays transactional prayers. Transactional prayers being, I need this, so give it to me. Or if you'll do this for me, I'll do that for you. It's it's the kind of conversation that you have at the checkout line. You go through the checkout line, you hand your your basket in, you put stuff on the counter, the the cashier goes through, and and you have whatever conversation you have is primarily focused on this transaction. Biblical prayer has some some amount of transaction to it, but biblical prayer is far more relational. It's not so much I need and I want, but Lord, be with me. Remind me that you're there. Show me how to love you. Fill my heart with regard for you, with love for you. Only Christians can pray relational prayers. You know, as a practical matter, you could write down the prayer requests on Sunday. Justin and I meet every week, and I hadn't talked to him about this yet, but I was going to see about trying to get together with Justin and with Penny and with Dennis as, as an elder and kind of talk about how can we encourage prayer more, how can we get these prayer requests out. There are practical things that we can do as a way of reminder the most practical thing that I can think of that kills two birds with one stone is to get an index card and write down the prayer request for Sunday and that becomes your bookmark for your reading. And every time you go to Scripture to read, you're reminded that Becky is struggling. You're reminded that these twins are, are in need of staying safely where they are for the time being until the right time. You're reminded that people are traveling if you write down the date, you remember, oh, today is New Year's Day. Grace is flying home today. Lord, help them get there safely. Help her have a, a safe flight and make all the connections that she needs to make. And overarching all of it, this is the thing that only we can do as Christians. Lord, it's for your glory. It's for your glory. And so we do ask for healing. Because our hearts long for those who suffer to be comforted. But beyond healing, we ask that you be glorified. And if by a death you can be glorified, then do that. And show your greatness to the world. I don't want to leave these 
these four things without finishing by talking about the grace of God. It, it would be so easy just to take these four elements of, of the apostles' doctrine, the breaking of bread, prayers, fellowship, and, and take them as a legalistic admonition to straighten up and fly right. You're not reading the Bible enough, so I've spanked you, so now you can go read the Bible enough. You're not praying like you ought to. I don't pray like I ought to. So now we've all been thoroughly spanked. We all feel appropriately bad. All of this has to be rooted in the grace of God. It's legalistic to say, do what Jesus did. It's of grace to say, Jesus has done for me what I could not do. And now as I learn to trust him and follow him, he teaches me to do as he has done. But it's already been accomplished. And by the grace of God, through justification, you have already received full credit for the holiness of Jesus' life. We all understand that, right? That when you're justified by faith, you receive credit for Jesus' righteousness. That isn't just a general sense, that's specific. You've already received credit for Jesus' perfect prayer life. So why don't you not worry about having a perfect prayer life and just pray? You've already received credit for Jesus' perfect approach to the Word of God. Why don't you, you not worry about getting it exactly right and just read it and study it? You've already received credit for Jesus' devotion to his people. So why don't you just be devoted as you're able to and trust him to build you? When you go to pray today, tonight, tomorrow, just just remember and imagine, but remember that he is praying for you even as you come to pray to him. I want to encourage you this morning. You've got nothing to prove. You've got nothing to earn. There's no competition. There's nothing in the way. Nothing is holding you back from the the blessings of obedience. There's no point in saying, I'm too old. I've been in the Lord too long. I've done this so long and I've done it wrong the whole time. There's no point in trying to correct it now. You're clean in Christ. You have the exact same time that everybody else in this room has. You have between today and the day the Lord calls you home. We all have between today and the day the Lord calls us home. Come to his word. Pray. Devote yourself to the fellowship as you're able to. Take his cross seriously. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this year with the challenges and with the blessings that it's brought. Every single one of us has had pain and joy and frustration and grief and celebration. Some of us have made friends. Some of us have lost friends. We've had it all. We ask that in this year to come, you would glorify your name in us and through us. Teach us to take the, the, the disciplines and the admonition of Acts 2.42 seriously. Make us more like Jesus than ever before. We thank you for your gentleness and kindness in that process. We thank you for giving us the strength that we need 
to face each day in faith. We thank you for joining us together as a fellowship to encourage one another, to love one another, to be a blessing to one another. And we ask that you would build us and deepen us this year. We lift up those who are not with us today and ask that you would pour yourself out upon them, that they would be reminded to come to your word, that they would be filled with joy at the thought of the Savior. And we thank you for all of this in Jesus' holy, precious name. Amen. We are dismissed. <laughs>